Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. We dive into a variety of cases in both the U.S. and abroad. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of, like the Pocatello babysitter murders or the canal murders. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime, like the Tylenol murders and the Lindbergh kidnapping. We also dive into cases that are currently breaking thanks to DNA and forensic genealogy. Sometimes you'll hear from people connected to the cases, like the interview we did with the brother-in-law of the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now, including full seasons covering the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy, and new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. The suburbs have been labeled the most visible manifestation of the American dream. It's in these clean-cut bedroom communities with their perfectly manicured lawns, freshly painted streets, and blue-ribbon schools where countless families seek refuge from the frantic hustle and bustle of city life and the crime that comes with it. But parents who flee to the suburbs trying to insulate their children from the scourge of drugs and violence frequently discover a hard truth that crime, even murder, can take root anywhere, no matter the zip code or median income. James and Judy Ferris learn this in the most horrific way possible. Doted over from the time he was a child, Jimmy Ferris Jr. was supposed to end up a soldier, a firefighter, or a cop like his dad. 
Instead, on the evening of May 22, 1995, he was pronounced dead at the age of 16. The victim of two stab wounds suffered during a 10-second brawl over marijuana. Jimmy Ferris's tragic death astonished the small California community where he lived, shattering its veneer of safety and innocence. But what happened next, many would argue, was far more shocking. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Jimmy Ferris and the Agora Hills 4. Nestled in the coastal Santa Monica Mountains, Agora Hills, California, sits on the border between Los Angeles and Ventura counties. Separated from the bright lights and tough streets of LA by only a few miles, it feels light years away. Initially settled by the native Chumash and later Spanish missionaries, the area that was to become Agora Hills was for centuries ranch land, helping to supply the growing metropolis to the south with beef, chicken, and pork. As Los Angeles expanded, Agora's natural beauty caught the attention of the burgeoning motion picture industry. Starting in the 1930s, it became a destination for Hollywood studios, seeking to recreate the Wild West on film. For a short time, Agora was known as Picture City, after Paramount Studios built a ranch there, specifically to shoot westerns starring the likes of Gary Cooper, Buck Jones, and Hopalong Cassidy. Development, at least any to speak of, didn't begin until the 1960s, when white families triggered by busing policies in the nearby San Fernando Valley flocked west in droves to buy new homes in towns like Westlake Village, Calabasas, and Thousand Oaks. By the time it incorporated in 1982, Agora Hills resembled something off a Welcome to Southern California postcard, with ranch-style homes set on tree-covered hillsides and large lots that some homeowners use to put up barns and stables. Even today, it's not unusual to find a family of four riding on horseback to the local feed store. Located off the busy Ventura Freeway, Agora Hills has long presented an easy escape for parents who worked in the city but wanted no part of the Los Angeles school system. Parents like James and Judy Ferris, who moved there in 1975. At the time, the Ferrises believed they'd found Shangri-La, great schools, safe neighborhoods, plentiful parks, and well-maintained sports fields. Little did they know that under the surface, a blend of boredom, entitlement, lack of parental oversight, and easy access to drugs was beginning to migrate big city problems to the suburbs. Agora Hills recently attracted national attention as the future site of a first-of-its-kind wild animal bridge that will span eight lanes of freeway. Named for its billionaire benefactor, the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing was inspired by the region's most famous predator, the California mountain lion. But on a sweltering hot spring day in 1995, Agora Hills was home to a different kind of predator. Five alcohol-fueled teens with nothing to do, armed with false bravado, and at least two of them with pocket knives. The group of teenagers, seeking to ratchet up their early afternoon beer buzz with a puff of weed, set out for what they thought would be an easy score. Their destination? A crudely built wooden fort that belonged to the neighborhood drug dealer, 
Upon arriving, the teens met the owner at the clubhouse, 17-year-old Michael McLaurin, and his best friend, 16-year-old Jimmy Ferris, at the door. What happened over the next 60 seconds inside that cramped, dark space remains a point of debate 25 years later. What's for certain, young Jimmy Ferris would be dead as a result. James Perry Ferris III was born on October 8, 1978, in Woodland Hills, California. The youngest son of James and Judy Ferris, Jimmy as he was called from birth, was his mother's favorite, his bright smile gracing picture frames in every corner of their country home. Whether it was baseball, football, or soccer, Judy never missed any of her children's games, especially Jimmy's. Over time, her beloved baby boy grew into a dashing teenager with chiseled arms, long blonde locks, cinnamon-colored freckles, and a scruffy goatee. Jimmy excelled in sports, which in Agora Hills meant everything. But even as he grew in popularity at school, Jimmy remained intensely close with his parents. His father, a homicide detective with the LAPD by day and a swimming pool repairman by night, and mother, a nurse, worked long hours to ensure a comfortable upbringing for their four children, a world away from the tough streets Jimmy Ferris Sr. patrolled. But that also meant that Jimmy and his siblings were regularly left to their own devices, as were many of their friends whose parents were in similar situations. The Ferrises lived in Old Agora, a section of town known for its horse properties and gravel dirt roads. Jimmy loved exploring the surrounding open spaces and touring around town on his bike. At home, the Ferrises gushed over the family pets, two dogs, three cats, and two horses they kept in a stable out back. A lanky preteen, Jimmy quickly filled out, athletic enough to make the JV football team at Agora High School as a sophomore. Jimmy enjoyed lifting weights to improve his physique and for the attention it brought him from girls. One of the places he loved to work out was the makeshift gym he and his childhood friend Mike McLaurin set up outside the clubhouse McLaurin built in his grandparents' backyard. Despite his best friend's reputation for selling weed, Jimmy, his parents insist, had no interest in drugs or alcohol. He was at McLaurin's that spring day in 1995, not to knock back beer or smoke weed like most teens who visited the fort. He was there to work out. Speaking in the 1997 documentary, Reckless Indifference, Judy Ferris said of Jimmy, he was the closest thing to an angel on earth that I ever knew in my life. Jim Ferris Sr. was a cop's cop, tough and unyielding in the face of hardened criminals. But at home, he was a kind and caring father to his four children, especially Jimmy, whom he loved to take on hunting and fishing trips with his older brother Travis, according to the LA Times. The Times reported more than 350 people filled Pierce Brothers Valley Oaks Mortuary in Westlake Village to attend Jimmy Ferris's funeral services in May of 1995, many of them classmates from Agora High. Friends remember Jimmy as energetic and outgoing, loving motorcycles and time spent outdoors. Before his death, Jimmy dreamed of joining the military or becoming a motorcycle cop. To this day, his parents remain unflinching that their son did nothing to contribute to his own death, pointing out toxicology reports that show no signs of THC, the psychoactive substance found in marijuana, and no signs of alcohol. 
Judy Ferris told the LA Times of her son's visit to the fort that fateful day. He was at Mike's house that day exercising. He was trying to encourage Mike to be healthy. Jim Ferris Sr. said he was nothing like the monsters who stole his life. May 22, 1995, started like many other days in the lives of Jason and Micah Holland, with their mom making them breakfast. Sherry Holland had endured two difficult marriages that left her battered physically and emotionally, but she was determined to be a good mother. Keeping Jason and Micah in good schools meant keeping up with the cost of living, which meant working long hours in her job as a real estate agent. The two brothers, unlike most of the kids in their Westlake Village neighborhood, were not born into privilege. Their father and then their stepfather beat them, according to testimony Sherry Holland would give at trial. Rather than channel their pain into something positive, they did what most teens their age do, self-medicate with copious amounts of booze and weed. What's worse, they had a violent streak, a behavior they learned all too clearly at home. Both Jason and Micah carried folding pocket knives and enjoyed intimidating the rich kids they went to school with. Micah especially relished the bad guy role, having previously been arrested for theft and vandalism. The brothers' dysfunctional home life pushed them toward another type of family, a crew of local misfits who fashioned themselves after the gangs they'd heard about on their favorite rap CDs. Stoned by 9 a.m. and drunk by 11, most, like Jason and Micah, were raised by single moms, too busy with jobs to keep a close watch over them, or any watch at all. The brothers committed petty crimes and considered themselves unofficial members of the Gumbies, a loosely connected suburban San Fernando Valley gang best known for fighting, stealing, and vandalism, but not serious violence. Compared to the hardened criminal enterprises in South and East Los Angeles, police said, the Gumbies were little more than a glorified tagging crew. On this Monday, after a quick breakfast at their mother's townhome, the brothers, Jason, age 18, and Micah, age 15, set off to find their friends and begin their daily ritual. Joined by 18-year-old Brandon Hine, 17-year-old Tony Melody, and 17-year-old Chris Villardo, the teens skipped school and headed to a local park to get high in Chris's maroon-colored pickup. A 1999 LA Times article described the boys this way, all had academic problems and had been shipped off to area continuation schools. Two had dropped out. Another was a special education student. They were immature, party too much, and were living without purpose. By one in the afternoon on May 22nd, the teens had already polished off two six-packs of beer and were looking to score some weed. The group, two in the front cab and three riding in the back, drove out to see if Mike McLaurin had any weed. According to Brandon Hine, the subject of a 1997 documentary titled Reckless Indifference, Chris Villardo went into the fort alone and was only able to get a small amount of weed. Frustrated but undeterred, the group of boys went to several friends' houses, grabbing whatever amount of alcohol they could get their hands on. At the last home, they nabbed a fifth of Jack Daniels whiskey. Before long, their happy-go-lucky buzz turned into something far more ominous. Now more than ever, I'm keeping a close eye on my finances because inflation is out of control. 
With Rocket Money, I have a tool that can help me not only stay on track with my finances, but also save money by canceling unwanted subscriptions. Even when I'm on the go, I can access Rocket Money through their user-friendly app, and it's been such a great tool that's helped me take control of my money. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? We'll tell you what we heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, canceling subscriptions, and more, saving each of their members, on average, $700 a year. And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, Rocket Money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. Start canceling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com murderish. That's rocketmoney.com murderish. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. I think everyone is watching their money more than usual right now. In the current environment, everything costs more and that hurts. I recently started saving money with the Upside app. With the app, I'm earning cash back on a lot of my usual purchases, like gas and groceries, and Upside makes it so easy. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code MURDERISH to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Then just claim an offer for whatever you're buying, groceries, gas, or even lunch at a restaurant. You just have to check in at the business pay with a credit or debit card, and then get paid. One of the features I love about the Upside app is that based on my location, the app will tell me where I can find nearby cashback offers. See what I mean? Upside makes it really easy to get money back, so it's a total no-brainer. With the cashback I've earned through the Upside app, I can treat myself to a few more of my favorite coffee drinks each month. Download the free Upside app and use promo code MURDERISH to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code MURDERISH. As night fell, the boys headed to a nearby park to finish drinking. It was there they spotted a woman and her two young children at the playground and decided to scope out her van to see if they could steal some cash. They were in luck. Elise Mulder, the owner of the van, had left her wallet on the dashboard. L.A. County Deputy District Attorney Jeff Simo said in reckless indifference, they were like wolves on their way to a watering hole. They saw a little bunny and decided to take a side trip. Jason Holland, who was in the back of the truck, leapt out and snatched the woman's wallet from inside the van and then jumped back into the truck. But before they could drive off, Mulder saw what was happening and yelled at them to stop. L.A. County Prosecutor Mike Layton said, They laughed, called her a bitch, and took off. Enraged at the teen's blatant show of disrespect, Mulder decided to give chase. With her two infants strapped in their child seats, she caught up to the drunken teens at a pizza place, where she got out, reached through the driver's side window, and took Chris Villardo by the neck screaming at him to return her wallet, unaware that they'd already tossed the empty wallet onto the street. When the rest of the boys saw what she was doing, they ran to their friend's defense, pushed Mulder, and again called her a bitch. She then fled back to her van. The teenagers followed and pounded on the side of her vehicle. It was an act the teens would come to regret later at trial. 
their blood still pumping from the encounter with Elise, the boys set out again with renewed vigor. It was at this point that Chris Villardo, Micah Holland, and Tony Melodi allegedly decided to return to McLaurin's clubhouse to get more weed, by force if necessary. A matter central at trial, the boys in the back of the truck, Jason Holland and Brandon Hine, said they had no idea where they were headed or what the plan was once they got there. Rolling Stone reporter Ronald Sullivan said in Reckless Indifference, did they go there to buy the pot or did they go there to steal it? That's a question that's never going to be answered. It's completely murky. The whole situation is as murky as the atmosphere inside that fort was that evening. The forlorn structure at the center of this story was built by hand by Mike McLaurin and his grandfather once used by the neighborhood kids to trade baseball cards, act out imaginary war games, and tell ghost stories. The fort transformed into the party spot when those same kids reached adolescence. In the spring of 1995, the fort attracted a steady stream of underage kids looking to catch a buzz on Mike McLaurin's bud. While he sold the drug, the diminutive McLaurin was also known to be generous with his stash making the unsightly fort a popular destination for local teens. On the outside, McLaurin painted a giant cartoon-like animal. Inside, the ceilings and walls were black with no artificial light. There was a mattress, desk, plastic chair, couch, and a collection of electronic equipment that McLaurin initially told police the intoxicated group was after. Their real target, McLaurin would say at trial, was a small chest he kept in a locked drawer containing four zip-locked cellophane bags of grade-A cannabis. When the teens arrived at the backside of the large property just after 7 p.m., Chris Villardo stayed in the truck while the rest of the crew hopped a chain-link fence and headed for the fort. Micah Holland and Tony Melody arrived first, finding Mike McLaurin and Jimmy Ferris outside working out wailing away on a punching bag. Micah Holland and Mike McLaurin were familiar with one another. In fact, they had a history of conflict, with Micah often getting the better of the two. McLaurin would later tell investigators, according to tapes played during trial, that Micah had an alligator mouth that overloads his hummingbird ass, a crude way of saying he had more bark than bite. In the documentary, prosecutor Jeff Simo describes Micah Holland as an almost a psychopathic little punk who went around the neighborhood terrorizing everybody with one of two implements, either a bigger guy, a bigger juvenile delinquent who would always be with him, or a knife. Melody and Micah Holland walked straight into the fort as McLaurin followed closely behind. Jason Holland and Brandon Hine arrived moments later, hanging back at the entrance with Jimmy Ferris. In that instance inside the fort, several factors converged. A volatile mix of testosterone, adrenaline, and alcohol. McLaurin allegedly spotted Micah Holland pulling on the locked drawer where he kept his stash, demanding the keys to get inside. An argument ensued that ended in the two longtime rivals coming to blows. Prosecutor Mike Layton said McLaurin, bullied by the group his entire life, had decided enough was enough. Layton said in Reckless Indifference, this was his home. This was where he lived. He had his best friend there with him. This was going to be the day where he drew the line. In the darkness of the cramped and steamy fort, 
A frantic brawl ensued as the three teens at the door, Jimmy Ferris, Brandon Hine, and Tony Melody, rushed in to join the melee already in progress. The intensity and violence of the battle escalated quickly, with McLaurin initially winning the upper hand, holding Micah Holland down on the bed and pummeling him with elbows to the back and neck. Jason Holland attempted to pull McLaurin off of his brother, but McLaurin kicked him in the face. It was then Jason Holland allegedly said aloud, according to court documents, let's get this fucker. The next decision he made would come to haunt his life and the lives of everyone in that fort forever. Jason Holland reached into his back pocket, pulled out his three-inch blade, and plunged it into McLaurin's back and chest causing him to release his younger brother. Rolling Stone reporter Ronald Sullivan said of Jason's actions, this was an older brother who had basically taken care of his younger brother since he was an infant, protecting him from violence because he had a violent father, a violent stepfather, and lived in a violent situation. Jimmy Ferris rushed over to help his best friend, grabbing Jason by the shoulder to prevent him from stabbing McLaurin further. But as Jason came around, he stuck the weapon twice into Ferris's chest, nicking his liver with the first blow and his heart with the second. Within 10 seconds, the fight was over. McLaurin and Ferris escaped to the main house and the four teens ran back to Chris Villardo's truck, unaware of the consequences of their actions. McLaurin told detectives, according to audio recordings played at trial, that he never saw a knife not on the boys walking into the fort or during the fight. He said he only felt the blade pierce his skin and a pulsating pain. Brandon Hines said the same, telling Assemblyman Tom Steyer during an interview played in the documentary that he had no idea that anyone had been stabbed once the fight ended. After the four boys left the scene, without the marijuana they'd come for, Mike McLaurin and Jimmy Ferris burst through the door of McLaurin's grandparents' home, covered in blood. Inside the home, according to the LA Times, was McLaurin's mother, Nancy, an elementary school teacher, grading papers at the kitchen table. His grandparents were watching Jeopardy on TV. Jimmy Ferris fell to the kitchen floor, struggling to remain conscious. Nancy McLaurin called 911, but before paramedics could arrive, there was Judy Ferris, who rushed over from the family's home, only a few doors down, to be at Jimmy's side. Nancy elevated Jimmy's feet and used towels to apply pressure to his wounds. But the teen with the charming smile couldn't speak. He quickly turned gray. Judy Ferris said in reckless indifference, I screamed at him not to die. I said, don't die, Jimmy. I love you. I need you. Please don't die. But it was too late. One of the two knife wounds delivered by Jason Holland had punctured Jimmy's heart causing the teen to lose massive amounts of blood. He was pronounced dead a short while later at the hospital. McLaurin, the friend Jimmy Ferris died trying to save, was airlifted to Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Woodland Hills, where surgeons were able to revive him despite having suffered five stab wounds. Still high on liquor and adrenaline, the five teens didn't leave town or even attempt to hide. They went to McDonald's. As they were leaving, an L.A. County Sheriff's deputy pulled the teens over in connection with the theft of Elise Mulder's wallet, but the officer decided he had no reason to detain them and let them go. 
Curtis Leftwich, Tony Melody's attorney, said to the LA Times, you can look at it as either they really knew and they were incredibly cold-blooded to go sit down and have a hamburger, or they didn't have a clue what had happened, which is the case. Police raided Brandon Hines' home just after 3 in the morning on May 23rd. They found Brandon in the living room watching TV with his father. Micah Holland was asleep upstairs. Tony Melody turned himself in later that afternoon. Jason Holland evaded arrest for three weeks before finally submitting to arrest after his mother Sherry offered a televised plea. As details of the crime began to leak out, the Agora Hills community and the neighborhood surrounding it were hit by a sense of disbelief, of not wanting to accept that such a crime could happen in their slice of suburban paradise. Mary Poles of the LA Times wrote in a 1999 article, it left residents with the disquieting fear that good schools, stable homes, pleasant parks, and well-intentioned parents aren't enough to keep violence out. Following months of investigation, news hit that would reverberate across the legal world. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, fresh off its defeat in the O.J. Simpson trial, had decided to apply the felony murder rule in the case of the deadly backyard brawl in Agora Hills. That meant even though just one teenager, Jason Holland, had stabbed Jimmy Ferris, all four of the others, except Chris Villardo, who never left his truck, would be charged with first-degree murder. The troubled teens, most of whom had never seen the inside of a jail cell, were now facing life in prison. As applied in California, the felony murder rule holds that all involved in the commission or attempted commission of specified felonies can be charged with first-degree murder if a death occurs as a result of the crime. The mandatory sentence is 25 years to life. Under the felony murder rule, abolished in England in 1957, if a person is killed during the commission of a felony where there are multiple participants, all may be charged as if they did the killing themselves. The draconian law had been intended to deter gangs like the Crips and Bloods and Hells Angels from bank heists and armed robberies. But a group of youth offenders out to steal weed? The decision brought the case national attention. Defense attorneys and the parents of the accused wondered aloud whether the harsh punishment was because Jimmy Ferris's father was an LAPD detective or because the DA's office was trying to prove a point in the wake of their failure prosecuting O.J. Simpson. Alan Dershowitz, famed defense attorney, said of the felony murder rule in Reckless Indifference, the law recognizes you didn't actually factually kill anyone, but we're going to charge you with murder anyway. He calls it cruel and unusual punishment. By invoking the felony murder rule, prosecutors knew that they had to convince a jury that Jimmy Ferris had been killed during the commission of another felony, robbery, meaning the boys had gone to McLaurin's fort with the intent to rob him of the marijuana. To accomplish that, they intended to give the foursome a dramatic makeover at trial. From a group of beer-swigging, pot-smoking suburban troublemakers into something far more dangerous, a gang. The trial of Jason Holland, Micah Holland, Tony Melody, and Brandon Hine got underway in May of 1996 inside the Malibu courthouse. 
a fitting location for a case that turned out to be like something out of a Hollywood movie. The four teens, each represented by his own attorney, sat before a packed courtroom filled by their high school classmates. As writer Mary Poles of the LA Times described the surreal scene, before May 22nd, these were the boys they went to parties with, saw in the hallways of their high schools, invited to dinner at their parents' homes in the quiet suburbs. After May 22nd, these were the boys that police described as thieves, gang members, and cold-blooded killers. The prosecution's strategy was clear, to paint Jason, Micah, Tony, and Brandon as monsters who needed to be removed from society. Before opening statements, Judge Lawrence J. Mira ruled the state could not present evidence to suggest that the four teens were gang members, but that didn't stop prosecutors from trying. The suggestion, one that would drive a media firestorm, was the result of testimony by Mike McLaurin, who told police that prior to attacking him, Micah Holland had blurted out, you want shit with the Gumbies? Beyond that, there was little to suggest that any of the teens were involved in gang activity. Former LA County Sheriff's Detective Patrick Sullivan said the setting in Malibu resembled the trial of a mob boss or cartel leader, not for white kids from the suburbs. He told documentarians, I've never been involved in a murder case where everyone is searched unless it's a case involving people who are very, very dangerous. You would have thought that someone from the Mexican mafia or the black gorilla family was on trial. By the way the deputies acted, by the way the district attorney acted, they implanted in the jurors' minds that these kids were so dangerous that they had to be guilty and they should never walk the streets again. At the center of the prosecution's argument, the group's treatment of Elise Mulder, the woman whose wallet they stole in the park. Attorneys for the state recounted how the teens had mocked and terrorized her, how they laughed at her and called her obscene names, how they'd shown no remorse. Samoan Latin argued the incident was proof that Brandon, Jason, Tony, and Micah were not simply teens run amok, but calculated felons bound to hurt again. The prosecution focused several days on the incident at the park, painting the teens as miscreants willing to take out anyone in their path, even a defenseless mother at the playground with her two children. Jurors, most of whom hailed from Agora Hills and the surrounding suburbs, lapped up the devastating testimony. Jeff Layden, Tony Melody's uncle, said of the trial in Reckless Indifference, I call it the Malibu Rail Rides. It's a one-way ride and Mr. Simo was the engineer and Mr. Ferris was the conductor. And between the two of them, they railroaded these kids to prison for the rest of their lives. Sherry Holland, mother of Jason and Micah, said the parents of the four defendants couldn't help but feel like they themselves were on trial. They also sensed the Ferrises had a home field advantage. At different points in the trial, Jim Ferris Sr. could be seen passing notes to the prosecutor's table, and he and Judy were frequently viewed walking behind the district attorney team as they headed to their offices during breaks in the proceedings. Defense attorneys thought it was inappropriate, even grounds for a mistrial. They argued Jim Ferris's role in the investigation into his son Jimmy's death was out of legal bounds from the very beginning, influencing and shaping the narrative charges Jim Sr. strongly denied. 
Jim Ferris said about the accusations, conduct an investigation? That's absurd. They wouldn't let me anywhere near that investigation. I was in good hands with the sheriff's department. They did a great job. A felony murder rule conviction required all 12 members of the jury to agree that the defendants had gone to the fort with the intent to steal Mike McLaurin's marijuana. And to believe that, they had to believe the word of McLaurin himself, a confessed drug dealer. McLaurin made matters worse by lying to police initially, telling investigators that the group had come to steal his electronic equipment rather than admitting he had sold weed. Jill Lansing, Brandon Hines' attorney, said of McLaurin, he was an unreliable witness. He was the local drug dealer. He would say anything to save his own skin. In fact, that's exactly what McLaurin had done. Though it had never come out during the trial, appellate attorneys would later discover evidence that McLaurin had been offered immunity on the same day he had changed his story about the motive behind the 14s' visit. Pastor Dick Dietrich of the United Methodist Church of Westlake Village, a friend of the Hine family, said in the film Reckless Indifference of Mike McLaurin, I understand why he did what he did to save his skin, but I can't believe it doesn't eat at him. If he ever decided to do the right thing, I would give him as much attention and courage and support as I've given Brandon. In a trial marked by incessant objections, prosecutors Simo and Latin showed a win-at-all-costs mentality, attacking not only the four young defendants, who they constantly referred to as punks and tough guys, but also their attorneys, who they accused of fabricating evidence and coaching witnesses. Brandon Hines' counsel Jill Lansing said of the prosecution's performance, I've never seen anything like it. They kept the attention away from the evidence. It was just like one long tirade meant to inflame the jury and arouse hatred of these defendants. In the end, it worked. After closing arguments in the three-month-long trial, jurors announced they would not render a verdict until the judge assured them they would have a safe way out of the courtroom. At that point, the defendants realized their fate was sealed. Brandon Hines said, that's all we needed to know. Then came the verdicts. All four boys were found guilty. According to the LA Times, shrieking and crying could be heard in the courtroom as the verdicts were read. Parents and legal experts expressed shock after the verdicts were delivered. Pastor Dick Dietrich said, what happened to these guys may be legal, but by no stretch of the imagination is this fair or just. Alan Dershowitz, who was brought in after the trial to work on Brandon Hines' appeal, called the verdicts an outrage. The litigator said, I believe it amounts to cruel and unusual punishment. It's illegal, it's unconstitutional, and it's immoral. But for Jim and Judy Ferris, the verdicts brought tears of joy. They were frustrated with how the media had painted their son during the trial and the attention received by the parents of the defendants. The Ferris's told reporters after the trial, justice was done, according to a Ventura County Star article. Jim Ferris said, they committed a crime and now they're going to do the time. This is the way it was meant to be. Both Judy and Jim Ferris took the stand at sentencing, with Judy telling the judge, this is all I have left of Jimmy, as she held up a blade of his blonde hair, according to the Ventura County Star. I wish I had taken more in the hospital when I cut it. It's all I have left of him for the rest of my life. Jim Ferris was more direct. 
He pointed to the defendants and said, The truth is, very simply, my son is dead and you people killed him. And for that, you need to be punished to the full extent of the law. For Jason Holland, who delivered the fatal blow to Jimmy Ferris's heart, he received life without the possibility of parole. For Brandon Hine, who entered the scuffle only after Micah Holland and Mike McLaurin had come to blows, life without the possibility of parole. For Tony Melody, who never left the doorway of the fort, also life without the possibility of parole. Micah Holland, only 15 years old when the murder happened, was given the opportunity for parole because of his age at the time. In September of 2002, appeals attorneys for Brandon Hine filed a writ of habeas corpus in front of the California Supreme Court, arguing that the jury should have been made aware of Mike McLaurin's immunity deal at trial. By withholding it, they argued, McLaurin's testimony was made to sound more credible than it actually was. McLaurin's promise of immunity came from none other than Los Angeles District Attorney Gil Garcetti, who was made famous by the O.J. Simpson trial. William Ganego, attorney for Brandon Hine, said in Reckless Indifference, in closing arguments, the district attorney specifically told the jurors they should believe Mike McLaurin because what he was saying could be used to prosecute him when they knew that wasn't true. Throw out McLaurin's testimony, he said, and the entire felony murder case falls apart. But the appeal attempt failed, as did the second and final attempt in April of 2010, extinguished by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The setbacks didn't stop friends and supporters of Brandon Hine from pressing on. Many of them learned of Brandon's plight from the 1997 film. They, along with Brandon himself, kept up a letter-writing campaign that would last nearly a decade, asking any legislator who would listen to consider whether justice had been done. Just when it looked like Jason Holland, Brandon Hine, and Tony Melody would have to spend the rest of their lives in prison, a lifeline came. In 2009, then-California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger commuted the three sentences to allow for the possibility of parole. A decade later, and with his appeals exhausted, Brandon Hine was finally granted a successful hearing on October 30th of 2019, after more than 23 years behind bars. He was set free that November at the age of 42. Gene Hine, Brandon's father, said to the Acorn newspaper, We were always hoping for the best, and it became a reality. We were never going to give up. Tony Melody was released on parole that same year. Ironically, 2019 was the same year California legislators voted to change the felony murder rule to prevent a murder conviction against someone who is not the actual killer, did not act with intent to kill, or was not a major participant in the underlying felony who acted with reckless indifference to human life. The vote, however, came too late for Brandon Hine, Micah Holland, and Tony Melody. Jason Holland remains in Ironwood State Prison, serving a life sentence. He's twice been denied parole, most recently in 2021. His next parole hearing is set for July of 2024, when he'll be 48 years old. The wounds between the Ferrises and the parents of the defendants have never healed. Jim and Judy Ferris remain in Agora Hills to this day, popping up every time a new reporter on the story makes the mistake of painting Jimmy Ferris in a negative light. 
Their love for their son and sorrow over his premature passing still clouds any sense of pity for the four teens who spent a combined 80 years behind bars for the crime. This past year, the Ferrises celebrated what would have been Jimmy's 43rd birthday. That bright smile, now memorialized in photographs hung on walls and framed on desktop counters, still provides a positive energy in their Agora Hills home. Judy Ferris said to the Acorn newspaper, What is justice for a life? I don't know. I try not to think about the defendants. They destroyed their lives by what they did. They brought so many heartaches. When I think about that, it just brings back all the pain. As for the clubhouse that once served as a place for young boys to play and imagine, and later transformed into a dreary backdrop for a horrific crime, Jim Ferris indicated after his son's death that the structure would likely be torn down. You may have noticed that the murderish cover artwork has gotten a facelift. Although the podcast has new artwork, the content will remain the same. Don't forget to check out my new podcast, Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild story that even has ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening right now. There are quite a few episodes for you to binge. If you've caught up on every episode of Murderish and you don't want to wait for the next one to drop, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. As soon as you sign up at the $5 a month or higher level, you get immediate access to a bunch of ad-free Murderish episodes that cover cases not available on the free version of the podcast. To become a Patreon member, visit Murderish.com or just go to Patreon.com and search for Murderish there. I want to say a big thank you to Louise, Molly G, and Ebony J for becoming Patreon supporters. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate your support. If you enjoy Murderish, there are so many ways to support the show. You can tell your friends about the podcast or leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. You can also just wear a t-shirt while you're out and about. And trust me, it's a great conversation starter. Go to Murderish.com for a link to buy t-shirts, bags, coffee mugs, and so much more. Also, follow Murderish on Instagram and TikTok at Murderish Podcast. You can also find the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Murderish sound design and audio editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Kay Brandt. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.